When a scientist specializing in infectious disease and an oil rig technical writer come together, a best-selling canine mystery series is born. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Our guest today is a member of an exceptional mystery writing duo. Writing under the pen name Sarah Driscoll, Jen Dana, and Anne Vanderlyn came together from two very different worlds. One was an infectious disease researcher in Canada, the other an oil business technical writer in Texas. But they shared the same passion, writing. And when the two put their talents together, a canine mystery series was born. As a novelist, Jen Dana has penned over 16 novels. Her newest book is called Still Waters, and it's the seventh installment in the FBI canine novel series, and it features an FBI handler named Meg Jennings and her search and rescue Labrador named Hawk. In today's episode, Jen shares with us the work behind the novel series and what she learned about the deep connection between the FBI working dogs and their handlers. Jen also opens up about the passing of her writing partner in crime and how she will continue the character's journey after the loss of her co-author. Jen, Dana, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So you have written a lot of books. I hear you're working on your 16th right now. And the last eight or so have all had a dog as a character in the book. Yes, one of the main characters. What's with that? Um, It actually was kind of a a funny story how we got started on this series. We were writing, and my co-writer and I were writing police procedurals. And publishing is a business, and my agent had lunch with one of the editors at Kensington, and he said that he was looking for a police procedural series with a canine aspect. And because Anne, my writing partner, was a pit bull rescuer, and she had rescued schnauzers before that, and she was training them to be therapy dogs, we went, ooh, we can do that. So we we immediately sort of wrote a proposal in the first couple of chapters and handed it in, and they gave us a three-book contract right off the bat. Awesome. So the publisher basically had done their research, Kensington, and said, we need this. There's a market for this. Yeah. Can you make it? And you're like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And the editor himself wanted it. So, I mean, it's great to have a proposal for a dog book, (laughs) but if you know that it can sell, it's even better. Even better, because there are a lot of people who write dog books and they're in search of a market or a publisher, but you did it the other way around and it makes a lot of sense because evidently there is a demand for these types of mysteries that involve dogs. Yeah. Because you've sold a lot of books. How many cumulatively in this series with the dogs have you sold? You know what? I honestly don't have that number at hand. All of the, I mean, this is a part of publishing being a business. Right. All of the royalty statements are like a year behind. Right. So I don't have a good, a good picture of that. Yeah. A lot, I would guess, because they keep offering us new contracts. And so we're now contracted for books eight and nine, or rather I'm contracted for books eight and nine. So the series is ongoing. Yeah. And there are thousands of reviews on Amazon for each of the titles, and they're all very positive reviews. So Thank uh, you. kudos to you. I know many authors would like to be in that position. Thanks. Let's talk about the we you've been talking about, because you have had up until very recently a writing partner, as you describe her, Anne Vanderland, and you and Anne together were writing under the pen name Sarah Driscoll. How did that come to be? 
So it's actually kind of funny. I was just sort of writing for fun. You know, you write on the internet, you post stuff online when you just sort of, I'd been, I'm a lab manager at an infectious diseases lab. I'd been in the job for about 15 years. I was getting a little bit bored, started writing for fun and posting stuff online. And, and I'd like to say, you know, I'm a gun control loving Canadian. And she was a Texan who owned several guns. And she caught me in a really stupid gun error. And so she wrote to me and said, hey, you just killed your protagonist without meaning to. And so that started the conversation between us. And we sort of clicked right So she right was a reader. She was a yep. reader of yours and, and, yep. and a critic. Yeah, <laughs> yep. a, a fair critic. <laughs> a fair critic. And so we sort of clicked right off the bat. And then we started sort of writing together. And so our process always was that we would do character creation and storyline plotting together. Then I would draft the whole book. And then together we would rip it apart and build it back up together again. So it was it was a great meeting of the minds. And I was used to say she had a, a devious little brain that I was so happy to borrow. Had she been a writer before? She was a technical writer, so she didn't okay. write fiction. So she was, I mean, she was, it was great to have her editing skills to go over mm -hmm. my drafting skills. But yeah, I mean, it was her planning skills. And when it came to the FBI canine series, I mean, her dog knowledge was irreplaceable. So it's going to be a challenge for me to move on sort of without her. She's taught me so much. And I do have dogs in my life myself, so it's not that I don't know what I'm doing. But Anne actually, with one of her pit bulls, did nose work classes and, you know, was certified and all of that kind of thing. So that we made sure that our technical aspects of the series were right on. When did Anne pass? She passed in July. She found out that she had cancer in mid-June and was gone within about four weeks. Oh, I'm so sorry. So yes. how many times had you met in person? Once. Once. We All that time, we met in 2007. And uh, she, because she lived in Texas and I lived right. outside of Toronto. We didn't live anywhere near each other. She came up to visit her son in Pennsylvania once and we met in New York State. She came up, I came down, and, and we met wow. We met once. But we talked daily over email and phone calls. And, and the internet is a wonderful thing for, you know, meeting someone remotely and having them become one of your best friends. So neither one of you had fiction writing as a, as a like, it wasn't something you studied. You both came at this from very different backgrounds. Yours as a researcher, and I do want to get into that because what you research is pretty interesting. And her as a technical writer, is that like for a computer company or kind of technical? Um, no, she actually worked in the oil business. Uh, okay. That was why she was in Texas. Yeah. So, I mean, she'd done things like been out on oil rigs and, okay. and all of this kind of stuff. And so she had done technical writing as part of her job there. I have a, a Bachelor of Science. I'm a, you know, a, an immunologist and virologist. And and so, yeah, neither of us have like a master's of fine arts or anything. But if you read copiously, which both of us always did, you learn how to write and you learn how to write mysteries and thrillers. If that's what you read, the structure is just in your head. Mm -hmm. Okay. How many books a year do you read? Less now because if my butt is in a chair, I need to be writing. So I depend <laughs> It's hard on, to read and write at the same time. <laughs> it really is. So I depend on audiobooks almost exclusively because uh, when I'm driving to work, to go to the lab, when I'm cooking or gardening or vacuuming or whatever, you know, your brain is bored and your hands are busy. <laughs> I listen to audiobooks. So I don't know. I would guess maybe 25 or 30 a year. Okay. And what genre do you listen to? Oh, I'm all over the place. I like anything from historical fiction to historical mysteries. I like a lot of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, standard mysteries and thrillers. You know, Louise Penny has a book out today, and I'm all sort of grabby hands. Where's that book? 
So there's, you know, there's some autobi authors that I have. Yeah. So it's it's good to actually read really widely because that sort of helps inform your own writing. And I, when I talk about how many books I read, I'm not talking about the books that I have to read as research for my own writing. Well, okay. So I'm trying to get deep into your mind a little bit here and try to understand because there it is a hodgepodge in the most positive sense from what I observe, because you have the, well, I hear immunology is kind of big these days. Have you been involved at all in this thing that was going on for a while? Yeah, no, that yeah. was that was that was pretty much exclusively my yeah. life. We saw it coming down the well, pike. Tell me about your role with COVID research. Yeah, we saw it coming down the pike in January of 2020. Okay. When I came back from Christmas vacation, all of my scientific newsletters were full about this thing that was going on in China. Right. And so we started writing grants in January 2020, and we already had a project in mind by the time everything started closing down in the middle of March. So everybody else was sitting at home saying, I'm bored, and our lives were in overdrive. So we were trying to heavy lift, you know, a couple of clinical trials off the ground. And at the university, there were all these COVID procedures. You couldn't even set foot on campus unless you had a COVID project. It was very complicated, just the administrative aspects of working through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we never stopped work. In fact, our lives got a lot busier. And what specifically were you, what were you working on? So we did a, a couple of different projects. One was a mask project. We wanted to look at protection of, you know, the frontline COVID workers because there was literally no data out on sort of N95s versus medical masks and, and how those were sort of affecting people. It actually ended up being a lot more of a challenging a study than we thought it would because you think that people would be like, we're going to hand you an N95 mask and it's hard to get N95 masks. You want this, don't you? And nurses were like, no, we don't like them. They're uncomfortable. And they're hard to fit and all those yes, things. Yeah. yeah. So it actually was, you'd think this would be a, hey, this is a great study. It was really hard to get people involved in this study. Another study that we were doing is one that we do exclusively in Canada. There's a group out west called the Hutterites and they are small farming communities that tend to be sort of insular. And so my PI had in the past done a bunch of influenza vaccine studies there because they're these tiny little microcosms and you can do, it's almost like a little Petri dish. You can do sort of human studies inside these little groups. So we took those same people and transferred it to COVID. So that was kind of a good way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really busy and, and doing clinical trials is is challenging because of ethics and Supplies were a problem in the first year. It was it was a challenge. It was the very first time I missed a book deadline. I had a book that was due on June first of twenty twenty, and I said to my I said to my editor, I said this is going to be kind of like a dog ate my homework kind of problem. <laughs> I'm not going to be ready on time, and my excuse is the pandemic. And she said, I don't know why any of us are trying to pretend that life is normal right now. Have two extra months. <laughs> That's good. Thank I, I, God. Think it's, I think you get a pass on that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm interested in, in the psychology of that first study when you're looking at N95s, mm -hmm. because I think being an author in the genre that you're in involves a deep understanding of human psychology. Yeah. How were you able to, to leverage some of that understanding of the way people think and characters think and diabolical characters think and all that to influence the study with getting nurses, in this case, to use N95? Well, it was it was interesting. To a certain extent, there's only so much that you can do when you're trying to convince someone. Mm -hmm. And as you remember back then, emotions were running pretty high. There was a lot of fear. Yeah, back then, they, they were all done now, but yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, I know, but so much more. I mean, back then when there were no vaccines, we had Anxiety, no idea yeah. we, when people were wiping down their groceries, mm -hmm. you know, back in those days. Right. So it was it was kind of difficult to sort of talk to people like that because it's kind of like talking to a wall. So in some ways it was good because it helped inform me as to sort of like like for the writing. Mm -hmm. 
sort of how entrenched people can get. You know, these are my views. You're not going to shift me. It was sort of interesting as sort of like from my perspective as a, as a human sort of study, just the personalities that were involved in that, especially at a time when you sort of thought, I mean, for the rest of the, the scientific community, we were all pulling in the same direction, mm -hmm. very little competition. Like normally it's like, I've got to publish before that guy publishes. This time it was just like, you know, I mean, the sequence for SARS-CoV-2 was published within a couple of weeks of them finding the virus. That is unheard of. And because of that, people could hit the ground running. Like that's the kind of thing that was going on in the scientific community. And some of the people who were trying to get into this trials were like, no, no, we don't like that mask. Okay. So let's go back to the dogs. And you say that you have a few dogs, but you really relied on your writing partner Anne's experience with dogs. What are, at Dog Podcast Network, we call it your dog cred. What's your dog cred? I grew up with a black lab, which is why the main character in this book is, is a black lab. Yeah. Shades lived until she was about 13. So I had her from my sort of, I was about five until I was about 18. So the real formative years. Mm -hmm. Wonderful family pet. Not nearly as smart as Hawk. <laughs> but then because my kids had allergies and stuff, we didn't have any dogs until we're a big rescue household. My husband and myself and my two daughters, between all of us, we have six rescued cats and two rescued Ooh. dogs. Wow. So we, we are big in the rescue world. And Chloe was our very first rescue dog that we got once my girls were adults. And uh, so she's a pit bull, Sharpay, Collie, Lab, you know, Heinz 57, great hybrid vigor mix. And we got her when she was 18 months old. And she's, she's fantastic. But when my daughter moved out with her fiance, they then adopted a great Pyrenees pit bull mix also a rescue. And so mm -hmm. I have grand dogs now who are around all the time and are always welcome in my household. They're up on my couch and, you know, all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, so we have dogs underfoot all the time. So, but I was noticing you when you were holding up a coffee mug earlier, there was a cat on it. So we won't Yeah, I do have to. Yeah, uh, I have this thing about cats. Um, yeah, because so, we So you're do. equal opportunity. We are an equal cat. opportunity. Okay. Yeah, two of the cats that we have rescued, we literally rescued a starving kittens out of our backyard. We can't handle it if there's, you know, an animal that's suffering and we can do something about it. So we keep gaining cats. Okay, you're definitely a pet lover. So yeah. in terms of the dogs that are characters in the books, do they have distinctive personalities Yes, they do. The main one, of course, we see is Hawk, who is the Black Lab, who is paired with Meg Jennings as the handler. There is also Lacey, who is a German Shepherd. There's also Border Collie named Rocco, and Theo is the Bloodhound. And they all have sort of slightly different personalities. Theo, like there's lots of Bloodhounds out there that are real go get them kind of dogs. Theo's very relaxed. He'd rather sort of, you know, why stand when you can sit kind of thing. Rocco's very energetic. Lacey is the type of dog who is very sort of very focused, but if things don't go her way, she has a tendency to, you know, sort of get a little bit down, which is a real thing that does happen with search and rescue dogs. If they can't find a live rescue or if they repeatedly find dead victims, they literally get depressed. And which was, the, you know, for example, a big problem during 9-11 was that mm -hmm. they would have to hide, you know, some of the rescuers in the rubble so that the dogs could have a live find. Mm -hmm. So they get discouraged. That's right. Yeah. Hawk is kind of an easygoing, very driven, but kind of an easygoing kind of dog. But, you know, will sort of go to the ends of the earth to kind of find what it is that he's looking for. So there are obviously so many different ways that a novelist approaches a book. But a common 
one from from my understanding of novelists, the few that I know, is that they kind of do this in-depth character mapping before they start a project. Did you and Anne do that with the canine characters in your books? Uh, with the canine characters, no. Yeah. We kind of, they're all sort of, I mean, they're based kind of on a, a mishmash of all the dogs that we sort of known in our lives. It's a composite, okay. Yeah, we had kind of, uh, you know, sort of a rough idea of where we wanted to go with it. But to a certain extent, we kind of wanted to let them lead us mm-hmm. as to how, as we got into the situations, how they would sort of go. But I mean, I was leaning very heavily on my black lab cane, which was Anne's therapy and nose work dog. She was kind of leaning on that. And and a lot of Kane's work informed how we did a lot of the technical stuff. And so some of his attitudes come out that way too. So I know that you went to the FBI and said, hey, we have a whole mystery series with, and just tell us the skinny on how you do your stuff. And the FBI said... Absolutely not. Go talk to the NYPD. Um, They are the first group I've worked with, the Massachusetts State Police, who were lovely. They invited me down. They met with me. They gave me a book of all their protocols. This is when we were writing the Abbott Lowell Forensic Mysteries. The FBI was just like, nope, we don't want to talk to you. Go talk to the NYPD. I don't want the NYPD. I want you. So I did get a little bit of information from them, but mostly I had to just do research. And then with whatever else we had left, we did sort of pull from how other law enforcement agencies use dogs to sort of make it as realistic as possible. But the rest, we just sort of had to embroider a little bit. So this is a great time for us to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll hear more about the special bond between these dogs and their handlers. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. <laughs> no matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life. And the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
We are back with Jen Dana. So Jen, when you were doing your background research to understand how these law enforcement dogs work and how they're trained and what they do, what were some of the, the most striking things that you learned that when you learned them, you were like, wow, I have to incorporate that into our books? I think the most the most interesting thing for me about this is is the connection between the dog and the handler. Like mm-hmm. this is a, a visceral, like the whole team does not work if the dog and the handler are not totally connected. They spend almost every minute of the day together. They you don't leave the dog at the office when you go home. The dog goes home with you. It's part of the family. Sometimes there's other dogs in the family, so it's part of the pack. Just the connection between the dog and the handler is the cornerstone of the whole work ethic and how the job gets done. And that was, I think, the thing that was most striking to me was it all falls apart without that connection. And it's not, people think that maybe the dog does all the work. Well, the dog does all the scenting work. Mm -hmm. But if the handler can't get the dog into the place where he can start to do the set work, Mm -hmm. there's nothing. So that to me was sort of the most interesting part was just how vital that connection is. And how do you, as a novelist, play that out in terms of making that relationship interesting to the reader and unique from book to book? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is that we don't give the dog a point of view. There are some mysteries out there, you know, the Chet and Bernie mysteries, Suspect by Robert Chris. He does it, too, where the dog has an actual point of view. I didn't feel that I could sort of speak to that well enough. So the dog's point of view has to come out through Meg. So there's a lot of sort of her reading the dog so that you can sort of understand, you know, from her own take on it, what the dog is thinking. So she really is the voice of Hawk, but we're hearing it through a human point of view. Okay. As as you mentioned, as you're alluding to, there are a lot of different uh, mysteries out there that do have dogs as characters. You recently spoke of Boucheron. Is that is that Bouchercon? Bouchercon. Yeah. I was trying to give it too much of a French <laughs> Bouchercon. Which Bouchercon. Is, uh, what is Bouchercon? Uh, so it's actually named after Anthony Boucher, and it is one of the leading mystery conferences, and it's a fan based conference in the world. So as opposed to something like Thriller Fest, where you go and it's a lot of workshops for writers, mm-hmm. BoucherCon is great because that's where you actually meet readers, and readers come from all over the world to meet, you know, all of the authors that they love, and there's seminars and panels and, you know, signings where you can have your book signed by your favorite author. It's really great. I've gone to, I think this is my fourth one that I've just gone to, and I've already signed up for San Diego next year because it's just... It's such a great place to connect with readers. And there's readers that I met. It sounds like Comic-Con for... Yeah, for, for mystery and thriller writers. It's fascinating. There was a session, this most recent one in the fall, called Woof Da, where there's a bunch of mystery thriller writers who use dogs as characters. You mean that that panel? The Woof Da panel? Uh-huh. Yeah, I was on it. I, I know. Yeah. So tell me about that <laughs> panel. What, what were the great insights when you sat down with these other authors who focus on, who have dogs? There, well, it was really there. it was really fun because everybody comes at it from a different angle. So there was Margaret who writes the Timber Creek mysteries, and so her husband is a vet, mm-hmm. so she gets a lot of her, and she worked a vet into her series, and so a lot of her, you know, dealing with animals and everything is because her husband's a vet. There was somebody else on the panel who was an actual handler herself. A lot of people just had dogs, but had great imaginations. And not everybody was like a serious thriller writer. We had a couple of cozy writers, too. So some of those were a little bit more fun. It was really fun because we all sort of handled it in slightly different ways. Some of them were really true police procedurals, like Margaret and myself. Some of them were 
you know, the dog is the sidekick, but was like an integral part of the story. So it was a really, it was a really nice mix and it went over really well. The, the audience seemed to have a really good time. So because you're able to be in that session with not only the authors, your colleagues, but with the fans and the fans of this particular subgenre of mystery, you must have had some observations as an astute observer of people. What, what are the kinds of people that like mysteries that involve dogs? Well, I mean, they like other mysteries too, but yeah, I mean, you could see that there were people who, when you were talking about the dogs in your your mysteries or about the dogs that you drew growing up, because a lot of people, there were questions that would come from the audience and they wanted yeah. to know about our own personal dogs. You could see a lot of head nodding, like, yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> and and yeah, often the people who follow a lot of the dog books are animal lovers of some sort. They don't necessarily need to be dog owners. Maybe they've had dogs in the past or they can't have a dog. And so this is how they sort of fulfill their their love of dogs. Or they're just general pet owners. But yeah, it was it was a really fun crowd. It was a group of people who really loved loved animals. And of course, the question that we always get every single time from every panel, will you kill any of your dogs? And you get everybody going, No. <laughs> okay. So is that yeah. is that pretty much an unwritten rule? Yeah. Although yeah, I mean, people say you're that supposed to kill done. your darlings, but just yeah. I guess not your darlings. No. I uh, I, I always say that I will feel free to beat them up a little bit. Yeah. You know, they do always come through completely unscathed. On yeah. uh, the fifth book in the series, one of the main dogs is very, very badly hurt in a cougar attack. Mm-hmm. So it brings some great drama because then, you know, there's four dog teams. It's like everybody shows up because, you know, one of theirs has gone down, basically. But yes, spoiler alert, the dog makes it. I couldn't live with myself if I killed one of the main dogs. I'm the kind of person who's like watching a movie and it's like, okay, you murdered those four people, but how's the dog? You know. Do you know about the website, Does the Dog Die? I do know about that one. Yeah. It's just wonderful. It's a website of, to find out, like, before I watch this movie, I need to know if the dog's going to die or not. And it's basically, you know. I was a kid when the Hindenburg movie came out. And I remember even as a child, it was like, okay, these people are going down in flames, but there's a dog on the ship somewhere. And I was so worried about this dog, even as a kid. And that hasn't changed since I could become an adult. We did an episode recently on the Titanic, and we talked about some of the stories of dogs that were on the Titanic. And actually, when they were, when James Cameron was filming that episode, they had some dogs, and you can see some prints on on YouTube where there were dogs Mm -hmm. running, and that made the cutting room floor. They decided not to include that because that would be too graphic. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, if it was me watching that movie, I would spend the whole time just being totally preoccupied about the topic. Yeah. So when you look to the future, where do you see your writing headed now that you are doing it by yourself? Well, I'm already well into the next book in the series. It's called That Others May Live, which is actually the slogan of Search and Rescue. It was a title that Anne had actually suggested for Still Waters. But when we sort of looked at the storyline and the title, I thought they were a bit of a mismatch that Others May Live kind of needs a big story to go with a title like that. Mm -hmm. So it's this title for book number eight. So I'm already starting to write book eight. I'm also contracted for book nine, and I'm hoping that the series continues. It's doing well for Kensington, so I would like to keep it going. (laughs) So you have a busy life. How many hours? I mean, I'm assuming your work is full-time at the university. It is, yes. And how much time per day, per week do you dedicate to writing? I usually say it's basically a full-time job, like it's two full-time jobs. I work all the time on my lunch hour, after work, after evening, all weekend long. Just ask my husband. He says he's a widower because I'm always at the computer with my head down. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, there are times when I can, I'm on vacation from the lab this week, for instance. So in my opinion, I'm only working one job instead of two because the book launches right. today. And it's more fun. <laughs> but you hopefully get out with your own dogs and, and your grand dogs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're here all the time and we go for walks with them and do hikes with them and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Do you see you running out of, of mysteries that where you can use a dog as a character? not. It's challenging because when you're doing something that's like, so it's the FBI canine. So of course it's a thriller. There has to be mm. some sort of crime that happens. It has to be a federal crime. So there's a limit to <laughs> what kind of crime it can be. Yeah. And then number one with a bullet for me with these ones is that there has to be something where you can keep the dogs involved all the way through the book. Truth to be told for search and rescue, it can be sort of short stints, like maybe there's a child missing and they go out and they find the child and the book's over. Mm -hmm. So there has to be something that sort of keeps it going long term. So that can be a bit of a challenge sometime. And maybe sometimes we stretch how the dogs would be used just a tiny bit. But, you know, I, the number one comment that I get from people is I love the fact that the dogs are so involved in these books. They have to be. They're the heart and soul of the series. Well, Jen Dana, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and your continued success. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you. I, I really had a good time and thank you for having me. If you would like to read Jen's newest book, Still Waters, well, you can find the link to that book in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or on YouTube. And you can listen to our entire back catalog of episodes by going to our website at longleashow.com. If you enjoy hearing about authors who write about dogs, I suggest you check out a favorite Long Leash episode we did a while ago that Jen talked about. It was an episode with Dean Kuntz. That episode is called My Life Transformed by a Golden Angel, and it can be found in today's show notes, as well as on the website, longleyshow.com. Well, that is all we have time for today. I want to thank you for joining us. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'm James Jacobson, wishing you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast. <laughs>